0: One of the things that I hope that you occasionally thank your other elders for when they pray, because I don't know about you, but when, when I hear these brothers pray, it makes me wanna pray more. And I love praying with them and I love hearing them pray for us. And so if, if you're feeling that impulse like I am, like man, I just wanna pray more, five o'clock, you can do that tonight. So come on back and we can pray together after Brian whetted our appetite for it with that great prayer. Well, let me invite you now to take a copy of the Bible, if you have one. If not, you can use the one in front of you. And we're looking at 1 Peter. So I'm excited because, I don't know if you noticed this, but all last year, through no intentional plan, we spent almost a whole year in the Old Testament. And that was awesome, and I think God used it in my heart, in my life. But as I was studying this week, I was like, Oh wow, this is kind of good to be back in the New Testament. So we're going to be looking at the book of 1 Peter. So today we're starting with just the introduction, just his first couple verses. So, sorry to disappoint you if you got into the habit of 47 verses in Genesis, mostly filled with obscure and hard to say names. We got two verses today. There's a couple names, but I think they're all manageable. So... Follow along with me, 1 Peter chapter 1, looking at verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we begin this new series this morning, I want to ask you just one question, something for you to ponder. And I want you to actually think about it internally. Don't just knee-jerk reaction. Think what kind of things come to your mind. And that question is who are you? Who are you? When you think about yourself in this life, in this world, what's your identity? What kind of things are coming to your mind even now? Maybe your age, you think either uh, I'm an old man or I'm a, I'm a young woman. You think about your job. You think about your family status, that I'm a, I'm a husband, or I'm single, or I'm a grandfather. Do you think in terms of success? Or do you think in terms of failure? Do you think in terms of abilities, intelligence, or sense of humor, or most people like me, or I'm dependable? How do you see yourself? And this is a really important question because how we view ourselves impacts the way we view the world around us. And how we view who we are impacts how we live in the world around us. And the Apostle Peter knew this full well. That's why when he writes this letter to a group of struggling Christians, he focuses on two things. Who they are and how that reality should shape the way they live. These Christians that he writes to were facing a world not that different from ours in many ways. They were facing, it says in verse 6, trials of one kind after another. They were being socially, if not physically, persecuted for following Jesus. Facing loss of their reputation, many of their relationships, probably even their livelihoods. And their suffering in these ways left them feeling discouraged and confused. They desperately needed some hope and some help. So Peter writes them this letter to encourage them, to give them the hope they need, and to help them know how this hope should shape their lives, even in their suffering. And the place he chooses to start is with rightly understanding who they are. One commentator said it this way. He said, Peter intends his readers to understand who they are before god so that they can be who they are in society in other words in the midst of all their confusion and suffering he wants to give them clarity about who they were and how they ought to live in light of that identity and as he unpacks these truths about the gospel and how it defines our identity and our calling he writes this letter to these struggling suffering christians to help them stay strong He tells us, it's so helpful when New Testament writers do this, he tells us himself why he wrote this letter. So you don't got to connect dots and think it through. He just comes right out and says it as he closes the letter in chapter 5, verse 12. He says this. He says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That's what he writes to these struggling Christians. So everything, he says, what I'm about to write to you in this letter, all the truths, all the admonitions, all the encouragements, all the challenges, everything I'm writing to you, this shows you what grace really is and how grace calls you to live. And this is what weak and weary Christians like you and I need. We need to be pointed to the true grace of God and encouraged week after week to stand firm in this. So as we start this series, I haven't done this for a while, so I want to offer you three suggestions for how to get the most out of our time together in 1 Peter. We'll be in this for several weeks, probably most of the spring, and I just want to help you have some ways to think of more than just showing up each Sunday and hearing a sermon. What are ways that you can kind of best utilize our time together in this book? I'll give you three of them. You can remember them really easily. Just think, eyes, heart, mouth eyes heart mouth so first use your eyes to read over first peter again and again i would encourage you read it as a whole book all in one sitting several times maybe even several times a week as you do that repetitively you'll get to know the lay of the land you'll get to know the big picture of what's this letter about so that when we zoom in on little parts you think oh he's going to talk about that later or oh that's like he said back here So you will give you a map of what Peter's talking about. Then pick some key passages in this book. And there are tons to choose from. Pick some key passages to memorize and store up in your heart. Or if you're really feeling ambitious, try to memorize the book. What a great thing to do in 2023. I mean, if this book is meant to help us know who we are and how we should live as Christians... What better truths to store up in our hearts to help us navigate a confusing and difficult world? Then after you've read with your eyes and you're memorizing in your heart, use what you're reading and memorizing to pray for one another with your mouths. Ask God, week in and week out, to help each of us. Pray for people by name. Say, God, help this person to believe these promises. Help this person to live the way it calls us to live here. So as we go, this will help you get the most out of your time. And just think, if you, if you engage in this book with your eyes and your heart and your mouth, how might God change our church in the coming months? How might we look different at the end of this series as we get this book of 1 Peter down deep in our hearts and let it shape our lives? That gets me excited, and so I'm encouraging you to join me as we do that. So now as we start this morning, since this is a letter, I keep using that word, we're gonna just look at three things. I don't even have a slide for an outline because it's really simple. We're gonna look at who's the letter from, who's the letter to, and what does the author want the impact of this letter to be? Who's it from, who's it to, what's the impact? We're gonna spend most of our time in number two, just to set your expectations of who is it to. But first, let's see who the letter is from. Look at verse 1 again. It says there simply, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now for a minute, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of these Christians. Okay, you're struggling. You're looking for hope. You're looking for direction. Things are hard. And now imagine getting a letter from someone who was actually with Jesus. This isn't just some teacher you've heard on the radio or has a, has a cool blog or a, a, what do you call it, podcast. Like, this is somebody who was with Jesus. Someone who heard him teach firsthand. Someone who saw him heal people. Someone who watched him perform miracles. Someone who, as Peter himself reminds us in chapter 5, he calls himself a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He saw Jesus die. He saw Jesus be buried. But more than that, he was someone who talked to Jesus after he was raised from the dead. He was someone who saw Jesus ascend into heaven. Wouldn't you want to hear what someone like that had to say about the Christian life? But not only that, Peter's also the guy who had failed Jesus horribly. When in the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry... Peter abandons him, denies him three times. And yet we also know that Peter knew firsthand what grace was like as this same Jesus restored him, reinstated him, gave him the opportunity to say three times, you know I love you, Lord. So here's Peter who had watched Jesus suffer Peter, who had suffered as a follower of Jesus himself. And so if you're a struggling and suffering Christian, isn't this who you'd want to get a letter from? Well, guess what? You did. It's in your Bibles. It's called 1 Peter. And it's for us as well as the original readers. But it's important that we see here that Peter doesn't only identify himself by name. He doesn't just say Peter and launch into it. He calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that's massively important. Because the authority of Peter's words here come not because he was a witness of Jesus, but because he was his apostle. He was commissioned and sent by Jesus Christ with his authority. Therefore, he has the authority to declare to us, What the gospel is. What is the good news? He has the authority to define it and interpret it. And he can tell us how it ought to shape the way we live our lives as followers of Christ. What Peter tells us in this letter, we need to make sure we're hearing this before we get into the hard stuff. What Peter's telling us is that this is not merely good advice from somebody who's been there. That we can take or leave. or say, oh, that's a good idea. No, no, this is not good advice. This is an authoritative word for the church. Spoken by Peter. An apostle of Jesus Christ. So that's who this letter is from. Now let's spend a little time talking about who is it to. Just like every letter, Peter begins here by addressing his audience. Now if I were writing this letter, my guess is many of you, we'd probably go something simple. Think of the way you start your emails. Some people don't even use greetings anymore. But if you do, you're probably like, dear Christians. right? That sums it up. Or, hey guys, not Peter. No, no. Peter, even in his greeting, wants to make every word count and he wants to pack in as much encouragement as he can. So right off the bat, Peter does something profound. He reminds his readers who they are, who God has made them. He says, you are elect exiles. And those two words alone would have made them sit up and take notice because that's not a standard greeting. Like, what do you mean? Elect exiles. Because these two words contain two powerful reminders about their identity. First, they're exiles. So what's an exile? An exile is someone living in a land that is not their home. Living in a land that's not their home. We could also use words here like foreigners, sojourners, aliens. And this is important because part of why these Christians were so discouraged and struggling to have hope was that the world around them seemed so upside down and they felt so out of place and if you've ever lived in another part of the world you've probably felt something like this And i know many of you have i remember i lived for a while in the country of macedonia and there were things in Macedonia i love macedonia but there were things all the time that made me feel so ridiculously out of place things that just i scratched my head about on the good days on the bad days probably had a lot worse thoughts about it but like, Walking down the street, seeing cars parked all over the sidewalks at strange angles and sometimes even driving on the sidewalks of watching traffic laws that felt like they were literally being created as people drove. Like, I think you're allowed to do a left in front of blue cars. I'm like, that's, how is that a law? And then I would constantly get asked to go grab dinner at 11 o'clock at night. I don't do that. That's not how I'm wired. Not to mention there would be random donkeys grazing in the grass in the median of a major city street. The capital city, downtown, you'd be driving along in your taxi, there's a donkey not attended to, just grazing. There were just different values, different ways of doing things, things that made no sense to me, and things that I did there that I am confident made no sense to the people that live there. And Peter tells these Christians, hey, that's what it's like for you guys. You're exiles. You're outsiders. You don't fully belong. One commentator explained that the word exile was used to describe someone who did not hold citizenship in the place where he resided and would be viewed as a foreigner by the dominant culture. See, when someone was put in exile, it put them right away out of step with the society that was around them as i said their values and customs they were often not just different they were often in conflict with most of the surrounding culture see there would be everywhere you go there's a way things are done right sometimes you don't even know it. it's like the fish in the water it's just you're not aware of it but that's just how things are done and then there'd be these exiles who didn't do it that way they didn't march to the same drum What they believed and how they lived didn't make sense to those around them. And because they were different, they were often looked at with suspicion or seen as a threat to the established social order. Now, this is not hard for us to imagine this, right? Think about how controversial the topic of immigration is, and not just in America, all over the world. Think about how immigrants and foreigners, and people who aren't citizens of the country in which they're living are often talked about, both on the news by talking heads and in personal conversations or on Facebook. People reject them because they're outsiders, because they're different. They have these different customs and different values, and so people see them as dangerous or as possible threats. They're looked down upon. They're excluded. They're mocked. There are parts of society that are just simply off-limits to them and certain rights and privileges that they don't get to enjoy. That's part of what comes with being an exile. And when Peter wants to describe to these Christians how they stand in relation to the world around them, guess what picture he uses? He says, you're exiles. What Peter's saying here is saying, guys, there's a reason you feel so out of place sometimes as a follower of Jesus. There's a reason why you look around and you can feel just twisted up inside so troubled by the way things are. When you feel that ache in your heart, say, why are things like this? Why can't it be more like this? When you feel that ache in your heart for a better place, that feeling has a name. It's called homesickness. And you feel that because you're not home. You are in exile. Peter wants them and he wants us to understand that. To understand that as followers of Jesus, wherever we live, we live in a land that is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are in this world, but we're not of it. So when the society around us looks down on us, or is suspicious of us, or mistreats us, or excludes us, we should not be surprised we're exiles we're foreigners on earth and this has always been true of God's people right we just got done as I mentioned spending several months studying the life of Abraham in Genesis and do you remember how Hebrews 11 sums up Abraham and Sarah's life it says they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth So we're going from one end of the Bible to the other. We jumped clear almost to the end and we're seeing the same idea. So take heart, friends, because we come from a long line of exiles and strangers. And I think this is actually really encouraging. You might say, well, how in the world is that encouraging? I think it's encouraging to remember that we're exiles because if I'm an exile in this land, that means I belong to another land. I belong to a better land. So when I feel out of place here, when I feel that tension of like, I just don't feel like I can ever, I don't get this place. Like this boggles my mind. It frustrates me. I just, it wears on me. When I feel that, I can thank God because that means I'm not home yet. I'm on my way to somewhere else. And someday that satisfying feeling of like, I'm home, will come. But I don't need to look for it now because I'm an exile. Peter also says these believers are exiles of the dispersion. Do You see that there? That's a really significant word because the word is diaspora. Maybe you've heard that. It's, It's a word that was used to refer to the Jews who were scattered abroad and lived outside of the promised land. So now Peter here is taking that same word, that same idea, and now he's applying it to Christians including Gentiles. He's saying diaspora is not just Jews scattered abroad. It's the people of God, Jew and Gentile, scattered abroad. He's linking the church with God's people from the Old Testament. In fact, Peter does that several ways in our passage. He says Christians are a part of God's scattered people in the the diaspora, living outside the promised land. He also compares that to when Israel was forced to live in exile in lands not their home. So, He says, you're in a diaspora, just like the Jews. You're in exile, just like the Jews. And he tells these Christians that they are chosen by God, just as Israel was God's chosen people. We'll come back to that one. But why does that matter? Why all these links matters? Because Peter's telling us right up front, hey, you're now a part of God's covenant people. And this is a foundational idea he's going to bring up over and over in the letter. And he wants to get that on the table as the discussion starts. Okay, but we see here that the exiles Peter writes to in this letter are exiles in specific places. You see that there? In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now those are five connected regions in what is now western Turkey. This was a a large area, uh, at least probably about the size of California as far as land mass. And it was made up of both poor rural areas, lots of that actually. In fact, if you know your church history, later in a couple hundred years, there's something called the Cappadocian Fathers. These were these monks who were out in the wilderness. Well, they were in Cappadocia, which means there was a lot of wilderness where you could be a monk. So you've got these poor rural areas, and you've got a few urban areas connected by this network of roads. In fact, a lot of people speculate, we don't know, but they think the order you see of those regions listed was a route followed by the deliverer of the letter that he landed there and marched his way around in that order. Maybe. But this was a, an area that had a wide diversity found in it. There were indigenous peoples, people that had been there for a long time. There were Greek settlers. There were Roman colonists. And there was a pretty good-sized Jewish population in some of those areas. And people in these regions practiced many different religions. They spoke several different languages. They represented several different cultures. And scattered throughout this diverse society, there were these communities of Christians that Peter's writing to. And Peter's reminding them that wherever you might find yourself in that conglomeration of peoples, he says, wherever you are there, you're in exile. And they need to be reminded of that. It's not just a helpful reminder, it's a needed reminder. Because one of the dangers of exile is forgetting your identity. Sometimes you hear the phrase, oh, so-and-so's gone native. It's where they live somewhere so long, they start to adapt and embrace and live out the values and the cultures of the people around them. So you, as exiles, there's a constant pressure to conform to the culture around you. Because you're an outsider, you're always the minority. You're always the lesser voice. And so there's a, a pressure, spoken and unspoken, to change, adapt, conform, be like us, to lose what makes you distinct and instead embrace the same values and beliefs and practices of the society around you. So this is a sobering warning both to these believers and to us as well this morning. See, if you and I are exiles as followers of Jesus, the question we all need to be asking ourselves is, do we look different than the unbelievers around us. If I picked any one of us up and plopped us out in a country on the other side of the world that spoke a different language, had a different culture, looked different, had different history, any one of us would stand out. And he's saying, that's what we are. And so in the same way, do we stand out? What decisions do you make that are different than unbelievers would make? What priorities actually drive your life that are different than the priorities non-Christians around you have? Do we look different in how we spend our time? Or is it the same? Do we look different in how we spend our money? Or is it the same? In our entertainment? Do we watch, listen to, enjoy the same things that an unbelieving world does? Do our marriages and families stand out as different and unique because we're followers of Jesus, or do they look just like the families down the block who don't know Jesus? Is the fact that you go to church on Sunday the only thing that separates you, that marks you out as different than the people around you who don't know Christ? If so, friends, hear God's word remind us we are exiled. We're not meant to blend in. We're not supposed to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed. As exiles, we are outsiders in culture. We're meant to be outsiders in culture. We always will be. We're not meant to resent that and kick against that and push against it and rail against it saying, let me in. We're meant to rejoice in that. And the reason we rejoice in our status as exiles is because we see here, we're not just exiles. We're elect exiles. We're chosen exiles. And this reality of being chosen would have been so comforting to Peter's readers. Because one of the things that comes with being an exile, as I point out, is rejection. You're in exile because a group of people rejected you while you live somewhere that's not your home. But Peter turns exile on its head when he says, no, 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 you guys misunderstand. You're not exiles because man rejected you. You're exiles because God chose you. God made us exiles here in this world when he chose us out of this world to belong to him. And he destined us for a heavenly inheritance, a heavenly home. He made us citizens of a new kingdom with new identities. He changed our culture and our values and our priorities to reflect his kingdom. And that is what puts us out of step with the world around us. Friends, Peter wants us to know from his very first words here, we're not in chapter 3, we're in his greeting. He wants us to know that even if society around us rejects us, God has chosen us. We are not exiles by accident. You are who you are because your God has sovereignly chosen you to be His. Now, I know some people bristle when they hear the term election or they find it controversial to say that God would choose us. But the truth is, friends, I'm telling you what the Bible is saying. It's right there on the page. And the thing is, it's all over our Bibles. And in the Bible, the fact that God has chosen us to belong to him is never meant or assumed to be a source of controversy. It's always meant to be a source of comfort. That's why when Peter writes to a group of suffering, struggling Christians, the first thing he reminds them is he says, friends, you are chosen by God. No one who got that letter said, are you kidding me, you're going to go there? No one. They said, oh, yes, i am chosen. Peter says he made you what you are. Election encourages us with the truth that God loved us and was at work in us long before we started seeking him. And by calling us elect or chosen, this is yet one more way Peter is linking us as Christians to God's people in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 7, to what, listen to what Moses says to Israel. He says, for you are a people Holy to the Lord your God. The Lord God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people. That the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. God didn't choose Israel because they were impressive or good or strong. They were weak, he says, and small. And yet it says, in his love, God chose them. Why? He loved them and chose them because he loved them. That's it. And guess what the New Testament tells us about Christians? In First Corinthians, it says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Here's why election is good news, friends. Because if God did not set his love on you because you were good enough, then you don't have to worry about losing his love because you're not good enough. God loving you and choosing you was never about your performance. And it's not now. That's one of the comforts we have. If God chose you, he chose you to be his treasured possession. He chose you to receive an eternal inheritance. He chose you to be holy and blameless before him. And here's where that gets really good. Because if he chose you for those things, Nothing will stop them from happening. No one, if you are God's possession, your treasured possession, no one takes away God's treasured possession from him. And nothing can stand between you and the inheritance that God has chosen for you. And nothing will stop God from finishing his work of making you holy and blameless and bringing you before him forever. That's the confidence and comfort we have because we are elect exiles. We know who we are, and we know whose we are. Then in verse 2, Peter describes our election, and he tells us three things about it. See that there? He says, our election is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. So let's unpack each of those real quick here. First, he says our election is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, when it speaks of God's foreknowledge here, it does not mean information God had beforehand. God did not choose us because of something good in us he foresaw. Instead, it means that God's choosing of us accords with or lines up with his eternal plan. God didn't just look into the future and predict our salvation. He predestined our salvation. That's what we read, for example, in Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God's foreknowledge is his eternal plan of what he's going to do to save sinners like you and me. That's what God foreknew. And Peter uses the same word a little later in chapter 1. If you run your eyes down to verse 20 in 1 Peter, it says, He, talking about Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God who ransomed us, he just told us in 18 and 19. He says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. Peter also mentions this when he preaches at Pentecost, Acts 2. When he talks about what Jesus has done, he says this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So what's the point of these texts? The point is that God the Father has had a plan from all eternity for how he was going to save rebellious sinners by sending his son to die as a perfect sacrifice. So that now, as we said earlier and sang earlier, by his blood, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And if you belong to Christ in that eternal plan, God chose you. He chose us in Christ, Ephesians says, before the foundation of the world. Friends, this is meant to make us marvel this morning that in the midst of your struggles and your sufferings and the confusion and chaos of life, long before you were born, long before you got into the situations you're in, God already knew you and loved you and was working to save you and make you his forever. Let that sink down deep. There is no trouble in your life that has been, at most, you've experienced it, what, decades? But from before the foundation of the world, God says, I already know what I'm doing with you. Your story is not some unknown plot. We may not understand how, well, what's it going to happen next? We know how it ends. There may be twists and turns along the way, but God chose you to be his forever. But that's not all. It says we are also elect in, through, or by, depending on your translation, the sanctification of the Spirit. Now often when we talk about sanctification, we we often mean the ongoing process of God making us more and more like Jesus. That is one way of sanctification. But here, sanctification refers to the one-time initial act where the Holy Spirit sets us apart at conversion to belong to God. The Spirit separates us from the world so that we can belong exclusively to God who chose us. So because the Spirit has done this, we are now God's people. Like when I was saying that in the introduction, I hope, that, I hope you hear that differently now, that when we say we are gathered this morning as God's people. Why are we God's people? How are we God's people? Because the Holy Spirit sanctified us. He set us apart We are now citizens of his unshakable kingdom. But to what end? What's the purpose of this election? This election that accords with the Father's eternal plan that is applied by the work of the Spirit. Look at verse 2. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And this is a really important purpose for us to see. Because it's not uncommon in our world, at least here in America, for people to talk about the Spirit pretty freely, talk about the Spirit working in their lives, and it's usually in terms simply of emotional responses or sensations that make them feel spiritual, whatever that means. But what we see here is that the Spirit works not merely to bring people to some generic spirituality, but for the purpose of obedience To Jesus and sprinkling with his blood. When Peter uses these two phrases here, obedience and sprinkling with his blood, he's most likely pointing us back to Exodus 24. What's going on there is that's where God's chosen and set apart people were gathered on Mount Sinai. There a sacrifice was offered and God gave the people his covenant message. And then we read these words. In Exodus 24, 7, hear this. Then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So what's happening? After God has redeemed his people, his chosen people, and set them apart to belong to him, back in Exodus 19, where he says, you will be to me a treasured possession. So he's already redeemed them, set them apart to belong to him. Now they pledge obedience to him. Say, we will follow you. And then they have the blood of the covenant applied to them. In other words, God's people committed to be what he had made them to be. But, if you know the story of the Old Testament, you know that even though they might have had the best of intentions that day on Mount Sinai, their obedience fell short. They failed. Why? Because they needed a better covenant with better blood. One that would not just give them rules and regulations on the outside, but one that would change us on the inside and empower us to do that obedience that we want to do. Which is exactly what God promises in the new covenant in Ezekiel 36. There, in Ezekiel 36, God speaks to his people, his chosen people, who are, guess what? Scattered and exiled. And listen to what he promises them. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you hear what's happening here? God speaks to his people dispersed in exile and promises one day, I'm gathering you back together. And he has a plan, he says, a definite plan. And I will sprinkle you clean from your sins. I will set you apart as my covenant people and I'll put my spirit in you so that you can obey. Friends, this is what Jesus has done for us. So when we hear Jesus calling us to repent and believe the good news, we pledge our faith-filled obedience. We say like Israel did, all that the Lord has said we will do and we are sprinkled with his blood, marking us as his new covenant people and we are given his spirit Spirit to empower our obedience. And one day, one glorious day, God will gather us from all the places we've been scattered and dispersed. And he will bring us into our own land. And we will no longer be exiles. That is our hope. That is the good news we believe. And notice this is not a minor thing. It's a Trinitarian salvation. Did you see that? It's a work of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And you're going to see that all throughout the book. Then in closing, we've got his, his greeting. What's his goal in writing this letter to struggling and suffering Christians? I think we see it there in a greeting in verse 2. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you from beginning to end, Peter's focus in this letter is on God's grace to us. The grace that saves us, and the grace that sustains us in our suffering. And throughout this letter, he wants that grace to be multiplied to us, he said. He doesn't just want it to come to us, he says, oh, I hope it just rains and pours buckets upon you of grace, so that we have grace to know who we are as God's elect exiles, and grace to faithfully live out that identity in the world with hope and holiness. As he closed the letter, and we mentioned earlier, this is the true grace of God. So stand firm in it. So Chapelwood, as we start this letter, my admonition to all of us, let's remember who we are. In regard to the world around us, remember we are exiles. But in regard to God, remember we are elect, chosen. So let's lean into that identity as elect exiles as we go through this letter and let us stand firm in the true grace of God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for letters like this in the Bible. Thank you that there have always been these groups of Christians that we can so easily identify with who are facing similar trials and challenges and adversities that we face. Who experience the same confusions and doubts and fears and you speak to them. So we thank you for this letter from Peter to Christians like us. And we thank you that right off the bat we are reminded who you have made us. That you have made us exiles in this world, out of step with the world around us, but you've made us elect exiles, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to belong to you forever. Would you help us even this day and this week to live out those identities that you've given us? God, I pray for myself and for this church that we would not be conformed to the world around us, Would you help us to not give in to the pressure to blend in, but would we rejoice in our otherness, our distinctness, our difference, not for the sake of being different, but for the sake of being holy and belonging to you? So would you do that work in us? Would you help us to stand firm in the grace that we talked about this morning, and that is waiting for us to be multiplied as we walk through this book together. I ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.